This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today we're going to be discussing former President Trump's lawsuit against Twitter, Facebook, and Google, which he filed for censoring or banning him from their platforms. Now, as you point out in your Defining Ideas column, this lawsuit is being dismissed in the press because, generally speaking, private companies are not under the jurisdiction of the First Amendment. But as you also point out, there may be a sort of gray legal area here. So will you take us through the lawsuit and explain to us how it's possible for a private company to be subject to the First Amendment? Well, I mean, this is something which is very difficult. What happens is uh, the clear case of an opposition between what is public and what is private presupposes that there are no connections between the two parties. Um, And generally speaking, that's the case. It is also the case, generally speaking, that if you're simply regulated as a private party by the government, that doesn't make you a government actor. And it's also the case if you receive some sort of immunity from the government, that too does not make you a government actor. But there's a fourth category there, which is much more difficult. And that's the cases in which somebody alleges that there's behavior in concert or cooperative behavior between the government and a private party. And under these circumstances, what happens is when these things take place in combination, it is possible to say that since the two parties are worked together, uh, the private party shall be treated as if it were an agent of the public party of the public situation. This law has not been fully developed in the First Amendment area, but it was developed in connection with equal protection law uh, some years ago. And perhaps I should, if you think it's appropriate, go into some of these kinds of refinements. Yeah, I'd I'd like to, because I think this is an interesting uh, application of the law. Um, I want to read something really quickly from the lawsuit, which I think is interesting. Uh, The argument that they're making is that Twitter is engaged, uh, has engaged in censorship, censorship resulting from threatened legislative action from misguided reliance on Section 230, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and willful participation in joint activity with federal actors. This makes the private company uh, rise beyond that to that of a state actor. Um, so Richard, if you, as, as you suggest, Twitter, Google, and Facebook, you know, might have, have cooperated with the CDC or other government agencies to make these decisions, they should probably face some sort of fact, uh, finding inquiry to determine whether these, these uh, actions actually happen. How would that work in practice? Okay, well, it's interesting. As you mentioned, they lump together two issues and I'm quite skeptical that, uh, Section 230 is, in fact, unconstitutional. Uh, it's been around for a very long time. It has an obvious purpose. Uh, I'll talk about this later. Uh, but it's also clear that Section 230 does not confer upon you an absolute immunity, but has a good faith requirement associated with the actions that you wish to take. Um, and it has a very broad phrase called objectionable content, which has to be narrowed in light of the other items that it's with. But turning to the other half of this case, uh, the key presence in this area, which created quite a stir when I was back in college, Tom, uh, which would have been 1961, was a case called Wilmington Parking Facility against Burton. 
Burton was an African-American citizen who basically went into this public facility and sought to have a meal served in a restaurant, which was leased from the government uh, to a private party. And with all great cases, this had no factual disputes whatsoever. Uh, The fellow inside the room said, we will not admit you because this is Delaware. This is 1957 or so, and you're black. Sorry, we won't do it. And this was before the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And the defense that you heard is identical to the defense that you're hearing uh, for the telecommunications and the network industry companies today. I'm a purely private actor under these circumstances, and everything that I do is not caught by the Equal Protection Clause because that requires that a state deprive somebody of the equal protection of the laws, and I, sir, am not the state. This was not a frivolous argument. I went back and read the opinion in the Delary Chancery Court, where in fact it was sustained, citing a large number of precedents, which actually looked at the time to be pretty authoritative. But this was the Warren Court. This was 1961. This was when a real head of steam was coming up on civil rights. But it was also a time at which the passage of some act including the so-called 1964 Civil Rights Act, which nobody thought of then, was a somewhat dim possibility. And so what the Supreme Court felt was that there was a huge void in the law under these circumstances. And I think it was a unanimous opinion written by Justice Tom Clark. And what he said is, in those cases where it turns out that the government and a private party insinuate each other into what is going on, then the action of the lessee is no longer regarded as private, but it's regarded as public. And in fact, in one way, this case is actually weaker Uh, for the complainant than the ones that we're talking about here, because the argument was that the federal government, rather the state and the city, owning the facility, had the power to include in a lease a term which said that you will serve all customers regardless of race. And they did not do that. There was no allegation in this particular case uh, that what happened is that there was some kind of encouragement or cooperation or approval process for this term. It was just a kind of malign or malignant neglect, whichever way you want to describe it. And nonetheless, they held that the state action requirement was satisfied. Now, this marks a very substantial change and extension with respect to the law. Uh, It could be distinguished, arguably, on the grounds that you're talking about government premises, but it could also be distinguished on the other ground the other way. The allegations that you put forward there are that there was constant collaboration uh, between the folks inside the government and the uh, people inside these networks. We do know, in fact, that they are, by virtue of some kind of necessity, they're always in constant contact with one another. It could be, for example, that you can have something to be said which says, you know, uh, we wish that you would basically shut the president up because he's talking about a set of issues in which he's likely to endanger public health, understand that we think to be appropriate by discouraging people, say, from taking vaccinations or whatever it is. Now, if you have all of this, there are two kinds of questions you have to answer, and we are on basically novel territory. The first one is you've got to sort of figure out what happened factually. Who said what to whom when? You cannot do that on a motion to dismiss, which is an effort of the defendants to get rid of this particular case before there's discovery. 
If you can show that there is, quote unquote, a genuine issue of fact with respect to the communications and cooperation between those two parties, that is an issue that you have to resolve by way of discovery. Then once you do that, you get all this evidence. You have to figure out whether or not it does or does not meet the standard for some kind of cooperation in these cases. And and so, for example, I take it would be pretty clear if they said, look, we want you to go after these guys. And if anything happens, we will back you to the hilt. That seems as though it's almost a cooperation and a direct order. If, on the other hand, they turn a blind eye and say, well, you may do this, you may do that. We're not going to tell you anything. Looks even worse than Burton, but not terrible. Or it could be that, you know, look, you're big boys, you decide what to do with your station, we're not going to say anything to do it. What the people on the other side are saying is that the motion to dismiss is appropriate because the cooperation issue is not to be regarded as relevant in this case, which I think is wrong. And then what they're saying is, even if it were, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. And so it turns out they are basically being extraordinarily dogmatic off a relatively uncertain record. I am not saying anything uh, to the effect that this case wins, uh, but trying to be more of a proceduralist, to put it in context, and to urge people to look very hard at what this record is going to show. Now, does this make a difference? Well, you're talking about hundreds of contacts between three major companies, all sorts of regulators, all sorts of policy people who are not regulators in the CDC or in the White House. You're talking about a very difficult area. If it turns out you get people in the Biden administration who start to say, we'll protect you come January 21st, and they're speaking after Biden has been declared winner. Does that count as public action? Does it not count as public action? So I think, in fact, it's a pretty long haul. And and I was very distressed by the dogmatic tone. I think it's important to keep separate whether you like or don't like Trump from the question as to whether or not you think he has a viable cause of action or at least a shot at getting one if he's entitled to get discovery. And so the dismissive tone, I think, is part of a pretty long campaign to basically try to marginalize him by making arguments that are not particularly appropriate under the circumstances. I haven't seen the record, so I'm not going to comment on what's going on here. But I do have this kind of a prior. Generally speaking, if you get a little stuff which turns out to be incriminating and you could dig a bit further, Behind the public record, you find a lot of stuff that works that way. And one of the things that we don't know is just how many contacts you have to have in order for this to say, aha, this is what tipped the balance. And generally speaking, the law of persuasion, the law of misrepresentation works when there's a single plaintiff talking to a single defendant or a single third party at a single time about a single incident. Uh, this is not this. This is basically a two-front war um, in World War II. And so it's going to be very, very hard if this thing actually opens up to be able to cabinet without doing some very, very hard thinking on both the factual and legal questions. So I want to do a quick follow-up here. So this is a case that could actually lead to new precedents. Uh, this is a, a, uh, an area in the law that, that isn't clear. Uh, what happens if a judge actually says, we don't know whether there's been constant collaboration, let's proceed? Does that mean that Trump's accounts need to be restated? Does that mean that things go on hold? I just want to know what, what happens next if that actually occurs. Well, 
Um, the general rule in an ordinary case is if you deny a motion to dismiss on the pleadings, there is going to be discovery. Uh, the defendants could try to discover something about Donald Trump, but that's not going to get them a lot. The plaintiffs can discover. What will the defendants do? My guess is that they will ask for a stay of discovery and allow themselves to make an intermediate or interlocutory appeal to go to some particular appellate court to say, look, the judge put all this stuff together. He's staying the order. And what we have to do is to have you decide whether or not, given this novel circumstance, this thing ought to go forward. This could happen in one of two ways. It could be the trial judge says, this is my priors, but I'm going to stop it. Or it could be the trial judge says, I'm going to go ahead. And then the appellate court comes in. You recall recently there was a case in which there was a trial judge in Alabama who says, I'm going to stop the emergency relief program with respect to rents associated with COVID. What happened is that was a final order. She then immediately stated, so there could be an appeal, and then the appellate court, I think, reversed it. So essentially, the government won having lost. And all of these procedures are there. The the basic intuition is uh, the more novel the case, the more extraordinary deviations you're going to see on procedural issues from accepted practices. And so this could go any which way. Uh, Who's going to win? Well, my own view about this is that, you know, that a lot depends upon who the judge of the panel is going to be. If there's somebody like Emmett Sullivan, right, who was involved in the Flynn case, you know what the answer is before you try the case. Because he was extremely resistant uh, to an effort to remove these things and was known to be a Trump opponent. If it's somebody who is a Trump appointee, you can't recuse them on that ground. But it may change the situation. So, Tom, what's happening is, The polarization on the bench between Obama appointments and Trump appointments and Bush appointments and so forth may mean that the choice of the judge will have a fairly large effect on the outcome of this case. We do not have in this current world the kind of landscape we had in 1995 where the dominant essential coalition in the United States was center-right on the Republican side and center-left on the Democratic side. Um, in the Clinton days. Uh, If you look today, it's either hard right or hard left. So the middle tends to be hollowed out. This may well play into the way in which these cases start to be tried. So I am not going to predict anything except surprises. But I do think, in effect, that the arguments over the preliminary motions on this thing to get the motion to dismiss, they are not. It's going to be a pretty ferocious kind of battle. And I think it's going to be closer than Trump's critics make it out to be. It is a mistake to say, because I dislike the man, I indeed loathe the man, uh, that he has to be wrong. You know my long-term position about Trump was as of January 2017, I thought he was basically right on most of the things that he had done, but should resign so that you could get Mike Pence as president. So this is not a case of somebody who is, uh, shall we say, predictable on these party line issues. And how is it going to play out now? I really have no idea, uh, but I think it's there. Let me mention one other thing, and if you want, we can talk about that too. Is uh, The question is, does Section 230 immunity apply under the statute as written is, I think, an interesting question.
So I, I do want to talk about that because, as you mentioned in your column, President Trump's argument is that Section 230 um, is per se unconstitutional and unlawful delegation of congressional power to private parties. And, and you've said that you think that that's incorrect. My question is, you know, how, do, how far does Section 230 go? Isn't there maybe a case to be made that political removals aren't covered as uh, you know, governing speech or, or uh, uh, possible harm? Well, I think you've got a good point. I think the argument that the statute is unconstitutional on its face is clearly wrong. As I say, it's not a delegation of authority to give somebody immunity if they are entitled to speech or to give them immunity from tort liability. Uh, You cannot make out an in-concert situation from that act and that act alone. But it turns out there is a further question, apart from the delegation question, as to whether or not the language of Section 230 actually gives blanket immunity in terms. And what it says, in effect, is that uh, if you, in good faith, voluntarily remove some stuff, then it lists a bunch of sexual offenses, and then it talks about objectionable conduct, right? Well, the first thing that you ask is, can you be in good faith if you have a clear political motive? And it's not at all clear what the answer is. If you take a leaf from First Amendment law, the ultimate sin, and one of the reasons why if they do establish a concert of action, the press is going to be in problem, is that the ultimate sin under the First Amendment is called viewpoint discrimination. The state is not allowed to put its thumb on the scales to influence popular opinion as to whether something should or should not take place in any particular area. So, Uh, If, in fact, you regard it to be in bad faith, if you know that you dislike the person and then prejudge the stuff, uh, the bias is not going to be there. The second thing is what's objectionable conduct. And there is a legal doctrine widely discussed, erratically applied, but quite relevant. It's called eustem generis, roughly translated. This is of the same sort as the other thing. So when you have a term like objectionable conduct at the end of a long list of things having to do with sexual offenses, well, you could think of some other sexual perversion that they haven't covered and put that. Maybe you could think of some other kind of morals offense that you could bring into the class. But the theory is, can you read the word objectionable conduct, divorce from everything that went before it, and say that Mr. Trump is objectionable because of the views that he wishes to express on COVID or something of the sort? I think the answer to that question is no. And I think that when you try to construe terms like this, a principle called constitutional avoidance says, read a statute that doesn't run headlong into conflict with the Constitution. And certainly saying that you can't voice these sorts of opinions would be that way. And so, you know, uh, the best test of an idea, its ability to get accepted in the marketplace is a famous maxim uh, by Oliver Wendell Holmes. And here you're having people who are going to say things about what the origin of COVID is, what the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine and ivomectin turns out to be. It turns out, it's not only that I think the critics have a right to speak, but I think on some of these issues, they're probably right. I mean, you know, I've been a skeptic about Mr. Fauci from the beginning, and I have to say I take a little bit of offense of finding other people expressing my views that somebody who's a fact checker at one of these three situations is going to say that my positions are not worth being heard because they know so much more than I do about these kinds of issues. So, I mean, I take this as a kind of a personal insult and a slight for them uh, to take this kind of position. I also think that there's another defect here, 
which is if you look at the First Amendment law, talking about violence and so forth, the standard is pretty tough. It means there's an imminent threat of violence, kill the so-and-so, you can stop it. There is a huge debate under the law, what about serious but indirect effects? And there's a famous case called Dennis against the United States, which said it doesn't have to be a clear and present danger. You can certainly punish a conspiracy, uh, which is now preparing to bomb the White House or something of the sort, even though there are many steps that take before they can actually build the bomb and deliver it. And the argument is that conspiracy doesn't fit well with the clear and present danger test. And so in many cases, if what you're trying to do is to stop violence, on the grounds that Mr. Trump may say something after a six-month silence, which may influence people to do something somewhere in the federal government, that's violence. You can't win on that if, in fact, the First Amendment applies to these cases. And the truth about the matter is, I don't think anybody in their right mind should give a test of violence like that. And one of the other tests that you have to take into account is, are they being consistent? This goes to good faith. This goes to the credibility of the violence. And the amount of sheer terror that gets put on the internet out of people like Hamas and Moscow and China and so forth, all sorts of horrific situations which are calling for direct violence if they let that stuff go. What about the president? So somebody's going to say, well, you know, you really have to decide whether or not January 6th was or was not an insurrection. I think the answer is if you're talking about July 6th or July 16th, no, you don't have to answer that question. At that particular point, that's closed. Nobody is active in any particular kind of dispute. What you have to do before you could go after the president, if a First Amendment principle applies, is you have to show some other immediate threat generated by his conduct, and you can't do that. And then the last point I would make is, suppose this is not a First Amendment case. I think it's absolutely ghastly that a private body which has this much power would use such loosey-goosey standards. And so even if I cannot punish them under the First Amendment or enjoin them, I think they should be subject to very sharp criticism for the kind of arrogance that they bring to a problem over which I think they show rather little understanding. I mean, I don't mind losing debates. But I do mind being shut up with respect to the way in which they operate. Last quick question for you, Richard. Facebook uh, banned Trump for two years. What do you think are the odds are that we'll see Trump back on Facebook in two years right before another presidential election starts back up? Well, I mean, if they can generate any grounds that they want to stop him now, they can generate a ground later. What happens is this man is an inexhaustible supply of ill-thought-out statement. And if they keep the same frame of mind, uh, they can do it again. So Twitter is for lifetime, but this does not preclude Google or Facebook from doing a seriatim on multiple occasions. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.